We open our Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 15. I'll begin reading at verse 22. Our passage is found in the Pew Bible on page 69. We saw last week, earlier in Exodus 15, the people of God lift their voices in praise because of the miracle that they had witnessed. God had parted the Red Sea so that they could walk through on dry ground. He had defeated his enemies and protected Israel. And now as the people leave the Red Sea, they are being led by God, a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. And yet he leads them into the desert, a place where they will be tested. Now Exodus, the second book in the Bible, is a picture for us, an announcement for us of God's good news. One commentator has called it the gospel, the good news of the Old Testament. Because when the people of God cry out to God, he hears their cry, and he responds by bringing rescue. And then he provides atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. So we have the people of God in desperate need. Listen to the word of God, Exodus 15. I'll begin reading at verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Let's pray. God, as you expose the grumbling attitudes of the people of Israel in Exodus, Lord, expose the places where we in our selfishness or arrogance rebel against you, where our hearts grumble about your goodness and your mercy. Lord, show your mercy to us that in the hearing of your word and its proclamation from the pulpit, our hearts would be transformed that we would expect to hear your voice and expect the work of your Spirit in bringing conviction to our hearts. And so, Lord, point us toward the hope that your Word offers, the hope that we find in Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, the one who proves your power and your mercy, our Savior who gave his life for us, our Savior who has been raised from the dead and reigns as the King Eternal. Father in heaven, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Henry Fonda brings his herd over the dusty plains in the opening scenes of John Ford's 1946 western, My Darling Clementine. The showdown in the movie will end at the OK Corral as Fonda's Wyatt Earp... Okay, I'm about to spoil the ending for you. All right, it's a 76-year-old movie based on, well, very loosely based on a 141-year-old historical event. But Wyatt Earp is going to win the shootout. 
at great personal cost. But, but here, at the, the beginning of the movie, it, it begins with his tired herd of cattle in dire need. Okay, now I ended up watching this movie this week because it turns out that My Darling Clementine is Colonel Potter's favorite movie. And of course, Colonel Potter is the fictional character who is the commanding officer of the MASH 4077. And MASH was my dad's favorite movie, my dad's favorite show, so I ended up watching this movie because it's... All right. At the beginning of the movie, there's this really bizarre line. But it made perfect sense to me this week because I had just read Exodus 15. Wyatt Earp asks, with the sound of cattle bleeding and this desert landscape behind him, he says, any sweet water up yonder? Any sweet water up yonder? Now, of course, he's not worried about the taste of the water. He's not, not concerned about, about its flavoring. No, he wants to know, is there water fit to drink that I can give to my cattle. Now, the need for water will draw Earp into Tombstone, where things will end in that famous shootout. Israel is in desperate need of sweet water. Water that, that will save their lives. Because they've traveled three days into the wilderness, their reserves of water are running dry, the cattle are thirsty. And just like White Earp's need for water draws him into a dangerous place, Israel's desperation, their need for water, will expose the danger that lurks within their own hearts. Because their physical need will expose their spiritual condition. And yet, even in their grumbling, their need will be met by their gracious God. The need is clear. We, we read it in verse 22. That after they left the Red Sea, Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. And when they finally do find water in verse 23, they come to a place called Mara, which if you look down in your little footnote, or if you've sat in Candace Krause's Sunday school class, and the book of Ruth reminds us this as well, when Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, bitter. The very place is named after the fact that you can't drink the water here. The minerals, the salts in it make it unfit for animal or human consumption. And, and the need for water in the desert is a real need. The situation is desperate here. For three days they have traveled without finding water, and when they finally do find water, they cannot drink it. Following God for Israel has turned out to be a rather complicated situation. First, when they left Egypt, they followed a wandering, meandering path that made them look like they were lost. And surely they must have thought at times, well, we're now heading north and I can see by the sun we've turned east and now we're heading back south and we appear now to have turned back toward Egypt. That They may have thought they were lost. Now, of course, we see at the Red Sea that God is luring Pharaoh into the final confrontation at the Red Sea. But for one following God, you look like you're lost and you surely feel lost. 
And now worse, after the enemy has been defeated, which direction does God take you? Do we take the, the highway by the sea straight into the promised land? No, we're told that Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. They're not heading directly toward the promised land. They are heading into the wilderness, further away from comfort. And the question that they, they must be wrestling with is, does God know where he's going? Does he know what he's doing? Because if you're following the wrong directions in a barren wilderness, then you might not survive. All right, it frightened me this week when I, when I typed this into my search engine. Bad GPS directions. Because what came up was news story after news story of people blindly following their GPS navigation systems in their car into the wilderness. And I don't just mean from, from a decade or more ago when maps weren't terribly reliable. I mean, even recently. Of people following digital map directions into the Australian outback instead of toward the city they thought they were going to. Or trying to find a shortcut through California's death valley. The names there should give you a hint of what happens if you get lost. A few years ago, Amber Van Heck was traveling from Texas, where she was a college student, to visit Arizona's Grand Canyon. But she says her GPS led her down a road that didn't exist. She explains, I turned anyway and figured I would see the road momentarily. It was getting dark, and then I panicked when the GPS stopped working. And she ran out of gas. She ends up finding a, the only man-made structure around a rusty and now unused water container in this barren landscape to at least get out of the sun. She survives on the few snacks she has in the car, the little bit of bottled water she has kept with her. And she hopes that someone will come down this dusty trail and find her. After five days in the desert, she decides she's going to have to walk in hopes of finding a cell phone signal. After 11 miles in the desert sun with no water, she is able to put a call through to 911, briefly alerting the rescuers of her general location. Now, thankfully, she was found by the rescue helicopter. And she was able to say in the hospital, I am glad to be alive. Except once you get lost in the desert without water, the outcome doesn't always turn out that a rescue helicopter shows up. Actually, in most of those newsrooms, now you might think in hearing a story like this, well, I wouldn't be so stupid as to follow GPS directions to my detriment. 
And I think, well, yeah, except that time last year when I thought I was going to a college campus for a visit and I ended up at the end of a dead-end street miles from my destination. Now, thankfully, I was still near a major metropolitan area and could stop and ask for directions, could actually check the street address and make sure you put in road and not avenue. See, we, we might think that, well, we wouldn't be so foolish as to turn down a road and keep driving. And yet, we can imagine her fear as Amber finds herself alone in the dark, as the sun rises the next day, as hope fades that, that a rescuer might come by, that somebody else might come down this road, and on the fifth day, so desperate that she is willing to risk her life, knowing that it, this is maybe her last hope of rescue. Because what if the directions aren't just trying to collate data from old maps, and then so in desert regions you have roads that no longer exist. What if the person giving you directions actually doesn't know where he's going? Or worse, what if he doesn't care what happens to you? I mean, the danger for Israel isn't just God's incompetence that he's going to get them lost. Maybe he, 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 he knows his way through the wilderness, but but doesn't care about them. It's really a question of God's goodness. I mean, we've been wandering for a while, even before we got trapped by Pharaoh. And now that God has defeated Pharaoh, is he done with us? Like, was that the point? That he was going to free us from slavery to prove what a great God he is? Is he the kind of God who, who only has power near the, near the borders of Egypt, and now that we've passed beyond the fortifications of, well, He's hopeless out here. And so it makes sense to us in verse 24 when the people grumble at this situation. This is not that you didn't get the, the, the choice of soda from the fountain when it, oh, there's, there's none of my favorite flavor left. No, this is a life and death situation. Without water, not only will the sheep and the goats, the flocks that they have brought along with them, die, so will their children and the, the infants they hold in their arms. They will not survive. Does God not care? And so the people grumble against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Because the problem is, yes, a problem about water. But the real issue in Exodus 15 is a question about God's character. Is he the kind of God who cares? Is he the kind of God who will actually meet our needs? Now Moses, in verse 25, hearing the grumbling from the people, Moses cried out to the Lord. See, we see not only the need in Exodus 15, but we see God's answer, his provision for his people. Now, we, we actually in the very first verse that I read, had the reminder of God's provision. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert. It, every time we hear the name of the place where God rescued his people, just, just those two words, Red Sea, in the Old Testament, it's, it's meant to be a reminder of, oh, that's not just a, a geographic location on a map. That is the place of God's powerful rescue of his people. 
That's the place where he stacked up the waters into walls of water to bring his people through on dry land and then dropped those walls onto the enemies of God's people. God rescued his people at the Red Sea. And so when Moses cries out to the Lord, well, actually, we realize that's the response that the people should have had. The response shouldn't have been grumbling. It should have been, God, help us. Because what we've already seen in Exodus, the, the, the whole story of this book is that the people of God cried out for help. God heard their cry, and God responded. And so Moses acts as the mediator between God's people who are grumbling and God by doing what the people should have done, crying out to God for help. And yet, just days after the rescue at the Red Sea, the people of God have turned away from God. They seem to no longer trust in God. They are grumbling against God. But I fear that this is often our response. Even as Christians, as people who have seen God's miraculous work and then look at our circumstances and say, oh, but God, you shouldn't have left me here. We are quick to let the situation around us define our attitude and our response. And so the circumstances shift our hearts into a mode of grumbling. But if God has brought us here, then we can trust that he is here with us. That's the promise that we have in the book of Exodus. That if God brought you to this place, he promises to remain with you in this place. We can trust, even without understanding everything that's happening, that God is still good. I was at a, a, a pastor's luncheon this week, and Pastor Curtis Hill shared with, with us. He's a pastor at Ogletown Baptist down in Newark. He, he shared with the, the, the pastors in our pursuit of humility, he, he said, he admitted that as he looks at his relationship with God, at all the things that he knows and all the things that God knows, he said, there is an omniscience gap between me and God. Now, I'm glad that Pastor Hill is willing to admit that he doesn't know everything. Because I could imagine it would be hard to get through life without knowing everything. Well, except, of course, Pastor Hill wasn't talking about only his own omniscience gap. He meant for every one of us. He quoted another pastor and said, at any moment, God might be doing 10,000 things in your life. At your most spiritually aware, at your most spiritually devoted, of the 10,000 things God is doing in your life, you might know about three of them. And yet we expect that when we look at our circumstances, we fully understand all that's happening. And that's not to minimize the horror and the sadness of what you and I face. Even when we can't understand the heartache, and the brokenness. We shouldn't jump to the conclusion that because things are broken, God doesn't care. We shouldn't assume that because things are difficult, 
the God is no longer good. See, in Exodus 15, God is not lost. He brought his people to this place. And he brought them here for a purpose. First, he's going to meet the, their very need, a, a, a miraculous provision, which, which compared to the miracle of the previous chapter, the walls of water crashing down on an enemy army, this miracle seems pretty small. Right? Verse 25, Moses cried out to the Lord. The Lord showed him a piece of wood. I mean, it could be as large as a branch or, or maybe even a, a, a full-size tree that has to be, has to be torn down. But, but Moses is told to throw it into the water, and the water became sweet. It becomes drinkable, which seems like such a small miracle in comparison. Unless you're someone who is on the very edge of death in desperate need of drinkable water. God meets his people's need. This undrinkable, bitter water, a place called Mara, bitterness, becomes sweet water for the people. Because God is bringing them out of the land of slavery, and he will lead them into his promised land. He wants them to understand what does it mean to trust fully in his promises. Because we read, as verse 25 continues, that it was there at this place where the water became sweet that the Lord made a decree and a law for them. And it was there that he tested them. The test is in verse 26. He said, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. You see, what God is saying is, the, the test that's right here before you is, do you trust that I am a good God? Because when you're lost in the wilderness in desperate need of water, that's the thing you question. Is God punishing me in this moment? Is this a judgment he's brought upon me? And he's saying, no, he's making a promise. Follow me, trust me, obey my commands, and I'm promising you I will not bring the judgments you have just seen me bring on the Egyptians. They will not fall upon you. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that people will be free from all of God's judgments. For sadly, not only will the rest of this book, but the books which follow in the, in the Old Testament canon, reveal to us the unfaithfulness of God's people. But God is revealing to them here the, the words that he says at the end of verse 26. He says, For I am Yahweh. To help them to stop stop trusting in their circumstances back in Egypt. Which, remember, those were bitter circumstances. The same word used here to describe the water was used earlier of their circumstances in Egypt. That the Egyptians made life bitter for them. God is removing them from bitterness to bring them to a, a, a promised land where they will experience the fullness of his blessings. But he's going to use the wilderness to teach them to trust in him. To help them to learn that, that trusting God means we can enjoy the benefits of relationship with him. One commentator summarizes this section of scripture by saying, Life in the wilderness will test the Israelites' loyalty to Yahweh. Will you trust God even if things are difficult? But God is showing them here his is the very thing that, that, that a commentator says is the reversal of the fundamental 
human rebellion against God. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, even in the goodness of creation without any suffering or pain, chose, instead of trusting God and stepping toward him in relationship, to step away from God and say, but wait, do you really have my best interests at heart? Are you really the kind of God that I could trust? You know what, God, I'm going to go my own way, do my own thing, trust myself rather than trust you. And in every moment of our lives, especially those moments where you feel pressed by life, that's the the question that's laid before you. Will the suffering of life cause you to take a step back away from God and say, I don't think he's still good? Or will suffering draw you closer to God so that as you see God's faithfulness to you, even in the difficult diagnosis, even in the continuing pain, even in the fractured relationships. We believe that God is good. See, the physical thirst of the people in the wilderness became an opportunity for the people to find spiritual refreshment. And that's the warning that is offered to us today as well. That if, in times of sorrow, You become bitter against God. Because the bitterness here is not merely a description of the water, but of the very attitudes of the people. Then you will find judgment instead of the blessing of God. The Apostle Paul explains that that's what this passage is meant to teach us. In 1 Corinthians 11, describing the wilderness wanderings, and they all passed through the sea. He's describing the the this very central section of Exodus, when the people were led by God through the Red Sea. And and yet, in, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, verse 10, he says, do not grumble as some of them did. He's warning us not to act the way we see the people of God act in the book of Exodus. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Meaning, after Christ came, we have the fulfillment of all that we were meant to see in God's provision for us. But don't act the way they acted. The the words of Exodus 15 are written as a warning for you today. And not merely warns us, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful you don't fall. See, when you're pressed to the very edge of yourself by the pain and suffering of life, you realize that you're at a breaking point where you think, I I don't know if I can go on. I don't know if I can trust God. I don't know if he's still good. You see the, the breaking point that you're at. But, but the warning is also, even if you feel like you're standing strong, like things are going well, be careful that you don't fall. Don't trust in the good circumstances around you as the assurance that all is well. Trust in the God who is with you in good and in bad circumstances. See, the suffering in this life is meant to push us toward God. And the pain that the people of Israel faced in their wilderness wandering, showed them 
that they provides sweet water for them here. God is the one who promises to heal them. He's the one who then, in verse 27, leads them down the road to a, an oasis filled with palm trees with, with enough water for, for everyone. God will meet all of their needs. See, our problems are used by God to help us depend upon God alone. See, today you may feel trapped in your own wilderness, spiritually thirsty, with the sun of despair bearing down upon you. But that that pain, that sorrow, should push you closer to God to find your satisfaction in Jesus alone. Exodus 15 pushes us toward the fulfillment of the ages that we just read about in 1 Corinthians 10. But it it pushes us directly toward the ministry of Christ. Jesus in John chapter 7, in the Gospel of John, one of the accounts of the life of Jesus, is teaching in in the city of Jerusalem, teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles, reminding the people of how God had had rescued them. There's a question that comes to to the people when Jesus claims to come from God and do God's will. The people wonder, who does he think he is? Is he the Christ? What What kind of man is he? Who has sent him? And in John 7, verse 37, we we have an invitation from Jesus. We read in John 7, 37, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Jesus speaks to us today in our times of sorrow, offering us spiritual hope, offering us the gift of eternal life, streams of living water from God which will well up within us, promising that wherever you find yourself, however far you fear fear that you are are from a source of water, that, that God is there with you immediately to meet your spiritual needs. God guarantees that he is with us. God has proven that he is good to us. Because even in our sin, even in our bitterness, even in our grumbling against God, like the people of of Israel in Exodus 15, God has not left us. God sent Jesus to take all of our bitterness, to absorb the judgment that we deserve. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. God overcomes Christ has been raised from the dead. So today, you have witnessed this miracle. God has provided everything you need. Water for a people in the desert, a Savior for sinners running away from God. We have the miracle not only of sweet water, but of a bitter heart that has been turned back to God. So today, put your trust in Jesus. He promises, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Let's pray. God of grace and mercy, we thank you for your lessons for us.
your warnings to us which come. Our Savior fully understands our suffering. And so, Lord, meet us in our time of need with your word, with your hope, with the truth of your gospel. Lord, for those that are investigating the claims of Christ, let them hear his invitation and respond. For those of us who who are standing firm, help us to trust fully and completely in your goodness, in your promises. Lord, you have shown us your love through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen.